Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Man Jeeves by P. G. Wodehouse. 6. Rallying Around George. I think one of the rummiest affairs I was ever mixed up with, in the course of a lifetime devoted to butting into other people's business, was that affair of George Latiker at Monte Carlo. I wouldn't bore you, don't you know, for the world, but I think you ought to hear about it. We had come to Monte Carlo on the yacht Kirke, belonging to an old sportsman of the name of Marshall. Among those present were myself, my man Vowles, a Mrs. Vanderlee, her daughter Stella, Mrs. Vanderlee's maid Pilbeam, and George. George was a dear old pal of mine. In fact, it was I who had worked him into the party. You see, George was due to meet his uncle Augustus, who was scheduled, George having just reached his twenty-fifth birthday, to hand over to him a legacy left by one of George's aunts, for which he had been trustee. The aunt had died when George was quite a kid. It was a date that George had been looking forward to, for though he had a sort of income, an income, after all, is only an income, whereas a chunk of goblins is a pile. George's uncle was in Monte Carlo, and he had written George that he would come to London and unbelt. But it struck me that a far better plan was for George to go to his uncle at Monte Carlo instead. Kill two birds with one stone, don't you know? Fix up his affairs and have a pleasant holiday simultaneously. So George had tagged along, and at the time when the trouble started, we were anchored in Monaco Harbor, and Uncle Augustus was due next day. Looking back, I may say that, so far as I was mixed up in it, the thing began at seven o'clock in the morning, when I was aroused from a dreamless sleep by the dickens of a scrap in progress outside my stateroom door. The chief ingredients were a female voice that sobbed and said, Oh, Harold, and a male voice raised in anger, as they say, which, after considerable difficulty, I identified as Vowes's. I hardly recognized it. In his official capacity, Vowes talks exactly like you'd expect a statue to talk, if it could. In private, however, he evidently relaxed to some extent, and to have that sort of thing going on in my midst at that hour was too much for me. Vowes! I yelled. Spy and cop ceased with a jerk. There was a silence then sobs diminishing in the distance, and finally a tap at the door. Vowles entered with that impressive, my lord, the carriage waits look, which is what I pay him for. You wouldn't have believed he had a drop of any sort of emotion in him. Vowles, I said, are you under the delusion that I am going to be queen of the May? You've called me early, all right. It's only just seven. I understand you to summon me, sir. I summoned you to find out why you were making that infernal noise outside. I owe you an apology, sir. I am afraid that in the heat of the moment I raised my voice. It's a wonder you didn't raise the roof. Who was that with you? Miss Pillbeam, sir, Mrs. Vanderlee's maid. What was all that trouble about? I was breaking our engagement, sir. I couldn't help gaping. Somehow one didn't associate vowels with engagements. 
Then it struck me that I'd no right to butt in on his secret sorrows, so I switched the conversation. "'I think I'll get up,' I said. "'Yes, sir. I can't wait to breakfast with the rest. Can you get me some right away?' "'Yes, sir.' So I had a solitary breakfast and went up on the deck to smoke. It was a lovely morning. Blue sea, gleaming casino, cloudless sky, and all the rest of the hippodrome. Presently the others began to trickle up. Stella Vanderlee was one of the first. I thought she looked a bit pale and tired. She said she hadn't slept well. That accounted for it. Unless you get your eight hours, where are you? Seen George, I asked. I couldn't help thinking the name seemed to freeze her a bit. Which was queer, because all the voyage she and George had been particularly close pals. In fact, at any moment I expected George to come to me and slip his little hand in mine and whisper, I've done it, old scout. She loves me. I have not seen Mr. Latiker, she said. I didn't pursue the subject. George's stock was apparently low that a.m. The next item in the day's program occurred a few minutes later, when the morning papers arrived. Mrs. Vanderlee opened hers and gave a scream. "'The poor dear prince!' she said. "'What a shocking thing!' said old Marshall. "'I knew him in Vienna,' said Mrs. Vanderlee. "'He waltzed divinely.' Then I got at mine and saw what they were talking about. The paper was full of it. It seemed that, late the night before, His Serene Highness the Prince of Saxburg Leignitz, I always wonder why they call these chaps serene, had been murderously assaulted in a dark street on his way back from the casino to his yacht. Apparently he had developed the habit of going out without an escort, and some roughneck, taking advantage of this, had laid for him and slugged him with considerable vim. The prince had been found lying pretty well beaten up and insensible in the street by a passing pedestrian, and had been taken back to his yacht, where he still lay unconscious. "'This is going to do somebody no good,' I said. "'What do you get for slugging a serene highness? I wonder if they'll catch the fellow.' "'Later,' read old Marshall, "'the pedestrian who discovered his serene highness proves to have been Mr. Denman Sturgis, the eminent private investigator. Mr. Sturgis has offered his services to the police, and is understood to be in possession of a most important clue.' That's the fellow who had charge of that kidnapping case in Chicago. If anybody can catch the man, he can. About five minutes later, just as the rest of them were going to move off to breakfast, a boat hailed us and came alongside. A tall, thin man came up the gangway. He looked round the group and fixed on old Marshall as the probable owner of the yacht. "'Good morning,' he said. "'I believe you have a Mr. Latiker on board, Mr. George Latiker?' "'Yes,' said Marshall. He's down below. Want to see him? Whom shall I say? He would not know my name. I should like to see him for a moment on somewhat urgent business. Take a seat. He'll be up in a moment. Reggie, my boy, go and hurry him up. I went down to George's stateroom. George, old man, I shouted. No answer. I opened the door and went in. The room was empty. What's more, the bunk hadn't been slept in. I don't know when I've been more surprised. I went on deck. "'He isn't there,' I said. "'Not there,' said old Marshall. "'Where is he, then? Perhaps he's gone for a stroll ashore. But he'll be back soon for breakfast. You better wait for him. Have you breakfasted? No? Then will you join us?' The man said he would, and just then the gong went and they trooped down, leaving me alone on the deck. I sat smoking and thinking and then smoking a bit more, when I thought I heard somebody call my name in a sort of hoarse whisper. I looked over my shoulder, and, by Jove, there at the top of the gangway, in evening dress, dusty to the eyebrows and without a hat, was dear old George. "'Great Scott!' I cried. "'Shh!' he whispered. "'Anyone about?' "'They're all down at breakfast.' He gave a sigh of relief, sank into my chair, and closed his eyes. I regarded him with pity. The poor old boy looked a wreck. "'I say,' I said, touching him on the shoulder. He leaped out of the chair with a smothering yell. "'Did you do that? What did you do it for? What's the sense of it? How do you suppose you can ever make yourself popular if you go about touching people on the shoulder? My nerves are sticking a yard out of my body this morning, Reggie.' "'Yes, old boy.' "'I did a murder last night.' 
What? It's the sort of thing that might happen to anybody. Directly Stella Vanderley broke off our engagement. Broke off your engagement? How long were you engaged? About two minutes. It might have been less. I hadn't a stopwatch. I proposed to her at ten last night in the saloon. She accepted me. I was just going to kiss her when we heard someone coming. I went out. Coming along the corridor was that infernal what's-her-name, Mrs. Vanderlee's maid, Pillbeam. Have you ever been accepted by a girl you love, Reggie? Never. I have been refused dozens. Then you won't understand how I felt. I was off my head with joy. I hardly knew what I was doing. I just felt I had to kiss the nearest thing handy. I couldn't wait. It might have been the ship's cat. It wasn't. It was Pillbeam. You kissed her? I kissed her. And just at that moment the door of the saloon opened and out came Stella. Great Scott! Exactly what I said. It flashed across me that to Stella, dear girl, not knowing the circumstances, the thing might seem a little odd. It did. She broke off the engagement, and I got out the dinghy and rode off. I was mad. I didn't care what became of me. I simply wanted to forget. I went ashore. I... It's just on the cards that I may have drowned my sorrows a bit. Anyhow, I don't remember a thing, except that I can recollect having the deuce of a scrap with somebody in a dark street, and somebody falling, and myself falling, and myself legging it for all I was worth. I woke up this morning in the casino gardens. I've lost my hat. I dived for the paper. Read, I said. It's all there. He read. Good heavens, he said. You didn't do a thing to his serene nibs, did you? Reggie, this is awful. Cheer up. They'll say he'll recover. That doesn't matter. What does to him? He read the paper again. It says they've a clue. They always say that. But my hat. Eh? My hat. I must have dropped it during the scrap. This man, Denman Sturgis, must have found it. It had my name in it. George, I said, you mustn't waste time. Oh, he jumped a foot in the air. Don't do it, he said irritably. Don't bark like that. What's the matter? The man. What man? A tall, thin man with an eye like a gimlet. He arrived just before you did. He's down in the saloon now, having breakfast. He said he wanted to see you on business and wouldn't give his name. I didn't like the look of him from the first. It's this fellow Sturgis. It must be. No. I feel it. I'm sure of it. Had he a hat? Of course he had a hat. Fool, I mean mine. Was he carrying a hat? By Jove, he was carrying a parcel. George, old scout, you must get a move on. You must light out if you want to spend the rest of your life out of prison. Slugging a serene highness is les majeste. It's worse than hitting a policeman. You haven't got a moment to waste. But I haven't any money. Reggie, old man, lend me a tenner or something. I must get over the frontier into Italy at once. I'll wire my uncle to meet me in— Look out, I cried. There's someone coming. He dived out of sight just as Vows came up the companionway, carrying a letter on a tray. What's the matter, I said. What do you want? I beg your pardon, sir. I thought I heard Mr. Latiker's voice. A letter has arrived for him. He isn't here. No, sir. Shall I remove the letter? No, give it to me. I'll give it to him when he comes. Very good, sir. Oh, Vows, are they all still at breakfast? The gentleman who came to see Mr. Latiker still hard at it? He is at present occupied with a kippered herring, sir. Ah, that's all, Vows. Thank you, sir. He retired. I called to George, and he came out. Who was it? Only Vows. He brought a letter for you. They're all at breakfast still, the sleuths eating kippers. That'll hold him for a bit, full of bones. He began to read his letter. He gave a kind of grunt of surprise at the first paragraph. Well, I'm hanged, he said as he finished. Reggie, this is a queer thing. How's that? He handed me the letter, and directly I started in on it. I saw why he had grunted. This is how it ran. My dear George, I shall be seeing you tomorrow, I hope. But I think it is better, before we meet, 
to prepare you for a curious situation that has arisen in connection with the legacy which your father inherited from your aunt Emily, and which you are expecting me, as trustee, to hand over to you, now that you have reached your twenty-fifth birthday. You have doubtless heard your father speak of your twin brother, Alfred, who was lost or kidnapped, which was never ascertained, when you were both babies. When no news was received of him for so many years, it was supposed that he was dead. Yesterday, however, I received a letter purporting that he had been living all this time in Buenos Aires as the adopted son of a wealthy South American, and has only recently discovered his identity. He states that he is on his way to meet me, and will arrive any day now. Of course, like other claimants, he may prove to be an impostor. But, meanwhile, his intervention will, I fear, cause a certain delay before I can hand over your money to you. It will be necessary to go into a thorough examination of credentials, etc., and this will take some time. But I will go fully into the matter with you when we meet. Your affectionate uncle, Augustus Arbutt. I read it through twice, and the second time I had one of those ideas I do sometimes get, though admittedly a chump of the premier class. I have seldom had such a thoroughly corking brainwave. "'Why, old top,' I said, "'this lets you out.' lets me out of half the darned money, if that's what you mean. If this chap's not an impostor, and there's no earthly reason to suppose he is, though I've never heard my father say a word about him, we shall have to split the money. Aunt Emily's will left the money to my father, or, failing him, his offspring. I thought that meant me, but apparently there are a crowd of us. I'll call it rotten work, springing unexpected offspring on a fellow at the eleventh hour like this. "'Why, you chump,' I said, it's going to save you. This lets you out of your spectacular dash across the frontier. All you've got to do is to stay here and be your brother Alfred. It came to me in a flash. He looked at me in a kind of dazed way. You ought to be in some sort of a home, Reggie. Ass, I cried, don't you understand? Have you ever heard of twin brothers who weren't exactly alike? Who's to say you aren't Alfred if you swear you are? Your uncle will be there to back you up that you have a brother Alfred. And Alfred will be there to call me a liar. He won't. It's not as if you have to keep it up for the rest of your life. It's only for an hour or two till we can get this detective off the yacht. We sail for England tomorrow morning. At last the thing seemed to sink into him. His face brightened. Why, I really do believe it would work, he said. Of course it would work. If they want proof, show them your mole. I'll swear George hadn't one. And as Alfred, I should get a chance of talking to Stella and making things all right for George. Reggie, old top, you're a genius. No, no, you are. Well, it's only sometimes. I can't keep it up. And just then there was a gentle cough behind us. We spun around. What the devil are you doing there, Vowles? I said. I beg your pardon, sir. I have heard all. I looked at George. George looked at me. Vowels is all right, I said. Decent vowels. Vowels wouldn't give us away, would you, Vowels? Yes, sir. You would? Yes, sir. But vowels, old man, I said, be sensible. What would you gain by it? Financially, nothing, sir. Whereas by keeping quiet, I tapped him on the chest, by holding your tongue, Vowles, by saying nothing about it to anybody, Vowles, old fellow, you might gain a considerable sum. Am I to understand, sir, that because you are rich and I am poor, you think you can buy my self-respect? Oh, come, I said. How much, said Vowles. So we switched to terms. You wouldn't believe the way the man haggled. You'd have thought a decent, faithful servant would have been delighted to oblige one in a little matter like that for a fiver, but not Vowles, by no means. It was a hundred down, and the promise of another hundred when we got safely away, before he was satisfied. But we fixed it up at last, and poor old George got down to his stateroom and changed his clothes. He'd hardly gone when the breakfast party came on deck. "'Did you meet him?' I asked. "'Meet whom?' said old Marshall. George's twin brother, Alfred. I didn't know George had a brother. Nor did he till yesterday. It's a long story. 
He was kidnapped in infancy, and everyone thought he was dead. George had a letter from his uncle about him yesterday. I shouldn't wonder if that's where George has gone, to see his uncle and find out about it. In the meantime, Alfred has arrived. He's down in George's stateroom now, having a brush-up. It'll amaze you the likeness between them. You think it is George at first. Well, look, here he comes. And up came George, brushed and clean, in an ordinary yachting suit. They were rattled. There was no doubt about that. They stood looking at him as if they thought there was a catch somewhere, but weren't quite certain where it was. I introduced him, and still they looked doubtful. "'Mr. Pepper tells me my brother is not on board,' said George. "'It's an amazing likeness,' said old Marshall. "'Is my brother like me?' asked George amiably. "'No one could tell you apart,' I said. "'I suppose twins always are alike,' said George. "'But if it ever came to a question of identification, there would be one way of distinguishing us. "'Do you know George well, Mr. Pepper?' "'He's an old pal of mine.' "'You've been swimming with him, perhaps?' "'Every day last August.' "'Well, then, you would have noticed it if he had a mole like this on the back of his neck, wouldn't you?' He turned his back and stooped and showed the mole. His collar hid it in ordinary times. I had seen it often when we were bathing together. "'Has George a mole like that?' he asked. "'No,' I said. "'Oh, no.' "'You would have noticed if he had?' "'Yes,' I said. "'Oh, yes.' "'I'm glad of that,' said George. "'It would be a nuisance not to be able to prove one's own identity.' That seemed to satisfy them all. They couldn't get away from it. It seemed to me that from now on the thing was a walkover. And I think George felt the same, for when old Marshall asked him if he had had breakfast, he said he had not, went below, and pitched in as if he hadn't a care in the world. Everything went right till lunchtime. George sat in the shade on the foredeck talking to Stella most of the time. "'It's all right,' he said. "'What did I tell you?' "'What did you tell me?' "'Why, about Stella? Didn't I say that Alfred would fix things up for George?' I told her she looked worried, and got her to tell me what the trouble was, and then you must have shown a flash of speed if you got her to confide in you after knowing you for about two hours. "'Perhaps I did,' said George modestly. I had no notion till I became him what a persuasive sort of chap my brother Alfred was. Anyway, she told me all about it, and I started in to show her that George was a pretty good sort of fellow on the whole, who oughtn't to be turned down for what was evidently merely temporary insanity. She saw my point. And it's all right? Absolutely. If only we could produce George. How much longer does that infernal sleuth intend to stay here? He seems to have taken root. I fancy he thinks that you're bound to come back sooner or later and is waiting for you. He's an absolute nuisance, said George. We were moving towards the companionway to go below for lunch when a boat hailed us. We went to the side and looked over. It's my uncle, said George. A stout man came up the gangway. Hello, George, he said. Get my letter. I think you are mistaking me for my brother, said George. My name is Alfred Latiker. "'What's that?' "'I am George's brother Alfred. Are you my Uncle Augustus?' The stout man stared at him. "'You're very like George,' he said. "'So everyone tells me.' "'And you're really Alfred?' "'I am. I'd like to talk business with you for a moment.' He cocked his eye at me. I sidled off and went below. At the foot of the companion steps I met Vowles. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Vowles. If it would be convenient, I should be glad to have the afternoon off. I'm bound to say I rather liked his manner. Absolutely normal. Not a trace of the fellow conspirator about it. I gave him the afternoon off. I had lunch. George didn't show up. And as I was going out, I was waylaid by the girl Pillbeam. She had been crying. I beg your pardon, sir, but did Vows ask you for the afternoon? I didn't see what business it was of hers, but she seemed all worked up about it, so I told her. Yes, I gave him the afternoon off. She broke down, absolutely collapsed. Devilish unpleasant it was. I'm hopeless in a situation like this. After I'd said, there, there, which didn't seem to help much, I hadn't any remarks to make. 
He said he was going to the tables to gamble away all his savings and then shoot himself because he had nothing left to live for. I suddenly remembered the scrap in the small hours outside my stateroom door. I hate mysteries. I meant to get to the bottom of this. I couldn't have a real first-class valet like Vows going about the place shooting himself up. Evidently the girl Pillbeam was at the bottom of the thing. I questioned her. She sobbed. I questioned her more. I was firm. And eventually she yielded up the facts. Vows had seen George kiss her the night before. That was the trouble. Things began to piece themselves together. I went to interview George. There was going to be another job for persuasive Alfred. Vows's mind had to be eased as Stella's had been. I couldn't afford to lose a fellow with his genius for preserving a trouser crease. I found George on the foredeck. What is it, Shakespeare or somebody says, about some fellow's face being sicklied over with a pale cast of care? George's was like that. He looked green. Finished with your uncle, I said. He grinned a ghostly grin. There isn't any uncle, he said. There isn't any Alfred. And there isn't any money. Explain yourself, old top, I said. It won't take long. The old crook has spent every penny of the trust money. He's been at it for years, ever since I was a kid. When the time came to cough up, and I was due to see what he did, he went to the tables in the hope of a run of luck, and lost the last remnant of his stuff. He had to find a way of holding me for a while and postponing the squaring of accounts while he got away, and he invented this twin brother business. He knew I should find out sooner or later, but meanwhile he would be able to get off to South America, which he has done. He's on his way now. You let him go? Oh, what could I do? I can't afford to make a fuss with that man Sturgis around. I can't prove there's no Alfred when my only chance of avoiding prison is to be Alfred. Well, you've made things right for yourself with Stella Vanderlee anyway, I said, trying to cheer him up. What's the good of that now? I've hardly any money and no prospects. How can I marry her? I pondered. It looks to me, old top, I said at last, as if things were in a bit of a mess. You've guessed it, said poor old George. I spent the afternoon musing on life. If you come to think of it, what a queer thing life is. So unlike anything else, don't you know, if you see what I mean. At any moment you may be strolling peacefully along, and all the time life's waiting around the corner to fetch you one. You can't tell when you may be going to get it. It's all dashed puzzling. Here was poor old George, as well-meaning a fellow as ever stepped, getting swatted all over the ring by the hand of fate. Why? That's what I asked myself. Just life, don't you know? That's all there was about it. It was close on six o'clock when our third visitor of the day arrived. We were sitting on the afterdeck in the cool of the evening, old Marshall, Denman Sturgis, Mrs. Vanderlee, Stella, George, and I, when he came up. We had been talking of George, and old Marshall was suggesting the advisability of sending out search parties. He was worried. So was Stella Vanderlee. So, for the matter, were George and I, only not for the same reason. We were just arguing the thing out when the visitor arrived. He was a well-built, stiff sort of fellow. He spoke with a German accent. "'Mr. Marshall,' he said, "'I am Count Fritz von Koslin, equerry to his serene highness.' He clicked his heels together and saluted. "'The Prince of Saxburg Leignitz.' Mrs. Vanderlee jumped up. "'Why, Count,' she said, what ages since we met in Vienna? You remember? Could I ever forget? And the charming Miss Stella. She is well, I suppose not. Stella, you remember Count Fritz? Stella shook hands with him. And how is the poor dear prince? asked Mrs. Vanderlee. What a terrible thing to have happened. I rejoice to say that my high-born master is better. He has regained consciousness and is sitting up and taking nourishment. "'That's good,' said old Marshall. "'In a spoon only,' sighed the Count. "'Mr. Marshall, with your permission, I should like a word with Mr. Sturgis.' "'Mr. Who?' The gimlet-eyed sportsman came forward. "'I am Denman Sturgis, at your service.' "'The deuce you are! What are you doing here?' "'Mr. Sturgis,' explained the Count, "'graciously volunteered his services. 
I know, but what's he doing here? I am waiting for Mr. George Latiker, Mr. Marshall. Eh? You have not found him? asked the Count anxiously. Not yet, Count, but I hope to do so shortly. I know what he looks like now. This gentleman is his twin brother. They are doubles. You are sure this gentleman is not Mr. George Latiker? George put his foot down firmly on the suggestion. Don't go mixing me up with my brother, he said. I'm Alfred. You can tell by my mole. He exhibited the mole. He was taking no risks. The Count clicked his tongue regretfully. I am sorry, he said. George didn't offer to console him. Don't worry, said Sturgis. He won't escape me. I shall find him. Do, Mr. Sturgis, do. And quickly. Find swiftly the noble young man. What? shouted George. That noble young man, George Latiker, who at the risk of his life saved my high-born master from the assassin. George sat down suddenly. I don't understand, he said feebly. We were wrong, Mr. Sturgis, went on the Count. We leaped to the conclusion, was it not so, that the owner of the hat you found was also the assailant of my high-born master. We were wrong. I have heard the story from His Serene Highness's own lips. He was passing down a dark street when a ruffian in a mask sprang out upon him. Doubtless he had been followed from the casino, where he had been winning heavily. My high-born master was taken by surprise. He was felled. But before he lost consciousness, he perceived a young man in evening dress, wearing the hat you found, running swiftly towards him. The hero engaged the assassin in combat, and my high-born master remembers no more. His Serene Highness asks repeatedly, Where is my brave preserver? His gratitude is princely. He seeks for this man to reward him. Ah, you should be proud of your brother, sir. Thanks, said George limply. And you, Mr. Sturgis, you must redouble your efforts. You must search the land. You must scour the sea to find George Latiker. He needn't take all the trouble, said a voice from the gangway. It was Vowles. His face was flushed, his hat was on the back of his head, and he was smoking a fat cigar. "'I'll tell you where to find George Latiker,' he shouted. He glared at George, who was staring at him. "'Yes, look at me,' he yelled. "'Look at me! You won't be the first this afternoon who stared at the mysterious stranger who's won for two hours without a break. I'll be even with you now, Mr. Blooming Latiker.' I'll learn you to break a poor man's heart. Mr. Marshall and gents, this morning I was on deck, and I overheard him plotting up a game on you. They'd spotted that gent there as a detective, and they arranged that blooming Latiker was to pass himself off as his own twin brother. And if you wanted proof, blooming Pepper tells them to show him his mole, and he'd swear George hadn't one. Those were his very words. That man there is George Latiker, Hesquire, and let him deny it if he can. George got up. I haven't the least desire to deny it, Vowles. Mr. Vowles, if you please. It's true, said George, turning to the Count. The fact is, I had a rather foggy recollection of what happened last night. I only remember knocking someone down, and, like you... I jumped to the conclusion that I must have assaulted His Serene Highness. "'Then you are really George Latiker?' asked the Count. "'I am.' "'Ear, what does all this mean?' demanded Vowles. "'Merely that I saved the life of His Serene Highness, the Prince of saxburg Leibniz, Mr. Vowles.' "'It's a swindle,' began Vowles, when there was a sudden rush, and the girl Pillbeam cannoned into the crowd, sending me into old Marshall's chair, and flung herself into the arms of Vowles. "'Oh, Harold!' she cried. "'I thought you were dead. I thought you'd shot yourself.' He sort of braced himself together to fling her off, and then seemed to think better of it, and fell into the clinch. It was all dashed romantic, don't you know, but there are limits. "'Vowles, you're sacked,' I said. "'Who cares?' he said. "'Think I was going to stop now I'm a gentleman of property?' Come along, Emma, my dear. Give a month's notice and get your at, and I'll take you to dinner at Ciro's. And you, Mr. Latiker, said the Count, may I conduct you to the presence of my high-born master? He wishes to show his gratitude to his preserver. 
"'You may,' said George. "'May I have my hat, Mr. Sturgis?' "'There's one bit more. After dinner that night I came up for a smoke, and, strolling on to the foredeck, almost bumped into George and Stella. They seemed to be having an argument. "'I'm not sure,' she was saying, "'that I believe that a man can be so happy that he wants to kiss the nearest thing in sight, as you put it.' "'Don't you?' said George. "'Well, as it happens, I'm feeling just that way now.' I coughed, and he turned around. "'Hello, Reggie,' he said. "'Hello, George,' I said. "'Lovely night.' "'Beautiful,' said Stella. "'The moon,' I said. "'Ripping,' said George. "'Lovely,' said Stella. "'And look at the reflection of the stars on the—' George caught my eye. "'Pop off,' he said. I popped. End of Rallying Round Old George This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Man Jeeves by P. G. Wodehouse. 7. Doing Clarence a Bit of Good. Have you ever thought about it? And when I say thought about it, I mean really carefully considered the question of the coolness, the cheek, or if you prefer it, the gall with which women as a sex fairly bursts? I have, by Jove. But then I've had it thrust on my notice by George in a way I should imagine has happened to pretty few fellows, and the limit was reached by that business of the Yeardsley Venus. To make you understand the full what-you-call-it of the situation, I shall have to explain just how matters stood between Mrs. Yeardsley and myself. When I first knew her, she was Elizabeth Shulbred, old Worcestershire family, pots of money, pretty as a picture. Her brother Bill was at Oxford with me. I loved Elizabeth Shulbred. I loved her, don't you know? And there was a time, for about a week, when we were engaged to be married. But just as I was beginning to take a serious view of life, and study furniture catalogues, and feel pretty solemn when the restaurant orchestra played The Wedding Glide, I'm hanged if she didn't break it off. And a month later, she was married to a fellow of the name of Yeardsley, Clarence Yeardsley, an artist. What with golf and billiards and a bit of racing, and fellows at the club rallying round and kind of taking me out of myself, as it were, I got over it, and came to look at the affair as a closed page in the book of my life, if you know what I mean. It didn't seem likely to me that we should meet again, as she and Clarence had settled down in the country somewhere and never came to London, and I'm bound to own that, by the time I got her letter, the wound had pretty well healed, and I was to a certain extent sitting up and taking nourishment. In fact, to be absolutely honest, I was jolly thankful the thing had ended as it had done. This letter I'm telling you about arrived one morning out of a blue sky, as it were. It ran like this. My dear old Reggie, what age is it seems since I saw anything of you? How are you? We have settled down here in the most perfect old house, with a lovely garden, in the middle of delightful country. Couldn't you run down here for a few days? Clarence and I would be so glad to see you. Bill is here, and is most anxious to meet you again. He was speaking of you only this morning. Do come. Wire your train, and I will send the car to meet you. Yours most sincerely, Elizabeth Yardsley. P.S. We can give you new milk and fresh eggs. Think of that. P.P.S. Bill says our billiard table is one of the best he has ever played on. P.P.S.S. We are only half a mile from a golf course. Bill says it is better than St. Andrews. P.P.S.S.S. You must come. Well, a fellow comes down to breakfast one morning with a bit of a head on, and finds a letter like that from a girl who might quite easily have blighted his life, it rattled me rather, I must confess. However, that bit about the golf settled me. I knew Bill knew what he was talking about, and if he said the course was so topping, it must be something special. So I went. Old Bill met me at the station with the car. I hadn't come across him for some months, and I was glad to see him again, and he apparently was glad to see me. 
"'Thank goodness you've come,' he said as we drove off. I was just about at my last grip. "'What's the trouble, old scout?' I asked. "'If I had the artistic what's-his-name,' he went on, "'if the mere mention of pictures didn't give me the pip, I dare say it wouldn't be so bad. As it is, it's rotten.' "'Pictures?' "'Pictures. Nothing else is mentioned in this household. Clarence is an artist. So is his father. And you know yourself what Elizabeth is like when one gives her her head?' I remembered, then. It hadn't come back to me before that most of my time with Elizabeth had been spent in picture galleries. During the period when I had let her do just what she wanted to do with me, I had to follow her like a dog through gallery after gallery, though pictures are poison to me, just as they are to old Bill. Somehow it had never struck me that she would still be going on this way after marrying an artist. I should have thought by this time the mere sight of a picture would have her fed up. Not so, however, according to old Bill. They talk pictures at every meal, he said. I tell you, it makes a chap feel out of it. How long are you down for? A few days. Take my tip, and let me send you a wire from London. I go there tomorrow. I promised to play against the Scottish. The idea was that I was to come back after the match, but you couldn't get me back with a lasso. I tried to point out the silver lining. But, Bill, old scout, your sister says there's a most corking lynx near here. He turned and stared at me, and nearly ran us into the bank. You don't mean honestly she said that. She said you said it was better than St. Andrew's. So I did. Was that all she said I said? Well, isn't it enough? She didn't happen to mention that I added the words, I don't think? No, she forgot to tell me that. It's the worst course in Great Britain. I felt rather stunned, don't you know? Whether it's a bad habit to have got into or not, I can't say, but I simply can't do without my daily allowance of golf when I'm not in London. I took another whirl at the silver lining. We'll have to take it out in billiards, I said. I'm glad the table's good. It depends on what you call good. It's half size and there's a seven-inch cut just out of balk where Clarence's cue slipped. Elizabeth has mended it with pink silk. Very smart and dressy it looks, but it doesn't improve the thing as a billiard table. But she said you said must have been pulling your leg. We turned in at the drive gates of a good-sized house, standing well back from the road. It looked black and sinister in the dusk, and I couldn't help feeling, you know, like one of those Johnnies you read about in stories who are lured into lonely houses for rummy purposes and hear a shriek just as they get there? Elizabeth knew me well enough to know that a specially good golf course was a safe draw to me, and she had deliberately played on her knowledge. What was the game? That is what I wanted to know. And then a sudden thought struck me which brought me out in a cold perspiration. She had some girl down here and was going to have a stab at marrying me off. I have often heard that young married women are all over that sort of thing. Certainly, she had said there was nobody at the house but Clarence and herself, and Bill and Clarence's father, but a woman who could take the name of St. Andrews in vain, as she had done, wouldn't be likely to stick at a trifle. Bill, old scout, I said, there aren't any frightful girls or any rot of that sort stopping here, are there? Wish there were, he said. No such luck. As we pulled up at the front door, it opened and a woman's figure appeared. Have you got him, Bill, she said, which in my present frame of mind struck me as a jolly, creepy way of putting it, the sort of thing Lady Macbeth might have said to Macbeth, don't you know? Do you mean me, I said? She came down into the light. It was Elizabeth, looking just the same as in the old days. "'Is that you, Reggie? I'm so glad you were able to come. I was afraid you might have forgotten all about it. You know what you are. Come along in and have some tea. Have you ever been turned down by a girl who afterwards married and then been introduced to her husband? If so, you'll understand how I felt when Clarence burst on me. You know the feeling. First of all, when you hear about the marriage, you say to yourself, "'I wonder what he's like.' Then you meet him and think, there must be some mistake. She can't have preferred this to me. That's what I thought when I set eyes on Clarence. He was a little, thin, nervous-looking chappy of about thirty-five. 
His hair was getting gray at the temples and straggly on top. He wore pince-nez, and he had a drooping mustache. I'm no Bombardier Wells myself, but in front of Clarence I felt quite a nut. And Elizabeth, mind you, is one of those tall, splendid girls who looks like princesses. Honestly, I believe women do it out of pure cussedness. "'How do you do, Mr. Pepper? Hark! Can you hear a mewing cat?' said Clarence, all in one breath, don't you know. "'Eh?' I said. "'A mewing cat. I feel sure I hear a mewing cat. Listen.' While we were listening, the door opened, and a white-haired old gentleman came out. He was built on the same lines as Clarence, but was an earlier model. I took him correctly to be Mr. Yeardsley, senior. Elizabeth introduced us. "'Father,' said Clarence, "'did you meet a mewing cat outside? I feel positive I heard a cat mewing.' "'No,' said the father, shaking his head. "'No mewing cat.' "'I can't bear mewing cats,' said Clarence. "'A mewing cat gets on my nerves.' "'A mewing cat is so trying,' said Elizabeth. "'I dislike mewing cats,' said old Mr. Yeardsley. "'That was all about mewing cats for the moment. They seemed to think they had covered the ground satisfactorily, and went back to pictures. We talked pictures steadily till it was time to dress for dinner. At least they did. I just sort of sat around. Presently the subject of picture robberies came up. Somebody mentioned the Mona Lisa, and then I happened to remember something in the evening paper, as I was coming down in the train about some fellow somewhere having had a valuable painting pinched by burglars the night before. It was the first time I had had a chance of breaking into the conversation with any effect, and I meant to make the most of it. The paper was in the pocket of my overcoat in the hall. I went and fetched it. "'Here it is,' I said. "'A Romney belonging to Sir Bellamy Palmer.' They all shouted, "'What?' exactly at the same time, like a chorus. Elizabeth grabbed the paper. "'Let me look.' Yes. Late last night, burglars entered the residence of Sir Bellamy Palmer, Dryden Park, Midford, Hats. Why, that's near here, I said. I passed through Midford. Dryden Park is only two miles from this house, said Elizabeth. I noticed her eyes were sparkling. Only two miles, she said. It might have been us. It might have been the Venus. Old Mr. Yeardsley bounded in his chair. The Venus, he cried. They all seemed wonderfully excited. My little contribution to the evening's chat had made quite a hit. Why I didn't notice it before I don't know, but it was not till Elizabeth showed it to me after dinner that I had my first look at the Yeardsley Venus. When she led me up to it, and switched on the light, it seemed impossible that I could have sat right through dinner without noticing it, but then, at meals, my attention is pretty well riveted on the foodstuffs. Anyway, it was not till Elizabeth showed it to me that I was aware of its existence. She and I were alone in the drawing-room after dinner. Old Yeardsley was writing letters in the morning-room, while Bill and Clarence were rollicking in the half-sized billiard-table with the pink silk tapestry effects. All, in fact, was joy, jollity, and song, so to speak, when Elizabeth, who had been sitting wrapped in thought for a bit, bent towards me and said, "'Reggie,' and the moment she said it I knew something was going to happen. You know that pre-what-do-you-call-it-you-get sometimes? Well, I got it then. What-oh, I said nervously. Reggie, she said, I want to ask a favor of you. Yes? She stooped down and put a log on the fire, and went on with her back to me. Do you remember, Reggie, once you said you would do anything in the world for me? There. That's what I meant when I said about the cheek of woman as a sex. What I mean is, after what had happened, you'd have thought she would have preferred to let the dead past bury its dead, and all that sort of thing, what? Mind you, I had said I would do anything in the world for her. I admit that. But it was a distinctly pre-Clarence remark. He hadn't appeared on the scene then, and it stands to reason that a fellow who might have been a perfect knight-errant to a girl when he was engaged to her doesn't feel nearly so keen on spreading himself in that direction when she has given him the miss in balk, and gone and married a man who reason and instinct both tell him is a decided blighter. I couldn't think of anything to say but, oh, yes. There's something you can do for me now which will make me everlastingly grateful. Yes, I said. Do you know, Reggie, she said suddenly, 
that only a few months ago Clarence was very fond of cats. Eh? Well, he still seems, er, interested in them, what? Now they get on his nerves. Everything gets on his nerves. Some fellows swear by that stuff you see advertised all over the... No, that wouldn't help him. He doesn't need to take anything. He wants to get rid of something. I don't quite follow. Get rid of something? The Venus, said Elizabeth. She looked up and caught my bulging eye. You saw the Venus, she said. Not that I remember. Well, come into the dining room. We went into the dining room, and she switched on the lights. There, she said. On the wall, close to the door, that may have been why I hadn't noticed it before, I had sat with my back to it, was a large oil painting. It was what you'd call a classical picture, I suppose. What I mean is, well, you know what I mean. All I can say is that it's funny I hadn't noticed it. Is that the Venus, I said? She nodded. How would you like to have to look at that every time you sat down to a meal? Well, I don't know. I don't think it would affect me much. I'd worry through all right. She jerked her head impatiently. But you're not an artist, she said. Clarence is. And then I began to see daylight. What exactly was the trouble I didn't understand, but it was evidently something to do with the good old artistic temperament, and I could believe anything about that. It explains everything. It's like the unwritten law, don't you know, which you plead in America if you've done anything they want to send you to the chokey for and you don't want to go. What I mean is, if you're absolutely off your rocker, but don't find it convenient to be scooped into the loony bin, you simply explain that, when you said that you were a teapot, it was just your artistic temperament, and they apologize and go away. So I stood by to hear just how the A.T. had affected Clarence, the cat's friend, ready for anything. And believe me, it had hit Clarence badly. It was this way. It seemed that old Yeardsley was an amateur artist and that this Venus was his masterpiece. He said so, and he ought to have known. Well, when Clarence married, he had given it to him as a wedding present, and had hung it where it stood with his own hands. All right so far, what? But mark the sequel. Temperamental Clarence, being a professional artist and consequently some streets ahead of the dad at the game, saw flaws in the Venus. He couldn't stand it at any price. He didn't like the drawing. He didn't like the expression of the face. He didn't like the coloring. In fact, it made him feel quite ill to look at it. Yet, being devoted to his father and wanting to do anything rather than give him pain, he had not been able to bring himself to store the thing in the cellar, and the strain of confronting the picture three times a day had begun to tell on him to such an extent that Elizabeth felt something had to be done. "'Now you see,' she said. "'In a way,' I said. "'But don't you think it's making rather heavy weather over a trifle?' "'Oh, can't you understand?' "'Look!' Her voice dropped as if she was in church, and she switched on another light. It shone on the picture next to old Yeardsley's. There, she said, Clarence painted that. She looked at me expectantly, as if she were waiting for me to swoon, or yell, or something. I took a steady look at Clarence's effort. It was another classical picture. It seemed to me very much like the other one. Some sort of art criticism was evidently expected of me, so I made a dash at it. "'Er, Venus?' I said. "'Mark you, Sherlock Holmes would have made the same mistake. On the evidence, I mean.' "'No! Jocund Spring!' she snapped. She switched off the light. "'I see you don't understand even now. You never had any taste in pictures. When we used to go to the galleries together, you would far rather have been at your club.' This was so absolutely true that I have no remark to make. She came up to me and put her hand on my arm. I'm sorry, Reggie. I didn't mean to be cross. Only I do want to make you understand that Clarence is suffering. Suppose. Suppose. Well, let us take the case of a great musician. Suppose a great musician had to sit and listen to a cheap, vulgar tune, the same tune, day after day, day after day. Wouldn't you expect his nerves to break? Well, it's just like that with Clarence. Now you see? Yes, but... But what? Surely I've made it plainly enough. Yes, but what I mean is, where do I come in? 
What do you want me to do? I want you to steal the Venus. I looked at her. You want me to... Steal it, Reggie. Her eyes were shining with excitement. Don't you see? It's Providence. When I asked you to come here, I had just got the idea. I knew I could rely on you. And then, by a miracle, this robbery of the Romney takes place at a house not two miles away. It makes the last chance of the poor old man suspecting anything and having his feelings hurt. Why, it's the most wonderful compliment to him. Think. One night, thieves steal a splendid Romney. The next, the same gang take his Venus. It will be the proudest moment of his life. Do it tonight, Reggie. I'll give you a sharp knife. You simply cut the canvas out of the frame, and it's done. But one moment, I said. I'd be delighted to be of any use to you, but in a purely family affair like this, wouldn't it be better, in fact, how about tackling old Bill on the subject? I have asked Bill already. Yesterday, he refused. But if I'm caught... You can't be. All you have to do is take the picture, open one of the windows, leave it open, and go back to your room. It sounded simple enough. And as to the picture itself, when I've got it? Burn it. I'll see that you have a good fire in your room. But, she looked at me, she always did have the most wonderful eyes. Reggie, she said, nothing more, just Reggie. She looked at me. Well, after all, if you see what I mean, the days that are no more, don't you know? Auld Lang Syne, that sort of thing. You follow me? All right, I said. I'll do it. I don't know if you happen to be one of those Johnnies who are steeped in crime and so forth, and think nothing of pinching diamond necklaces. If you are not, you'll understand that I felt a lot less keen on the job I'd taken on when I sat in my room waiting to get busy than I had done when I promised to tackle it in the dining room. On paper, it all seemed easy enough, but I couldn't help feeling there was a catch somewhere, and I'd never known time pass slower. The kickoff was scheduled for one o'clock in the morning, when the household might be expected to be pretty sound asleep, but at quarter two I couldn't stand it any longer. I lit the lantern I had taken from Bill's bicycle, took a grip of my knife, and slunk downstairs. The first thing I did on getting to the dining room was to open the window. I had half a mind to smash it so as to give an extra bit of local color to the affair, but decided not to on account of the noise. I had put my lantern on the table and was just reaching out for it when something happened. What it was for the moment I couldn't have said. It might have been an explosion of some sort or an earthquake. Some solid object caught me a frightful whack on the chin. Sparks and things occurred inside my head, and the next thing I remember is feeling something wet and cold splash into my face, and hearing a voice that sounded like old Bill say, Feeling any better now? I sat up. The lights were on, and I was on the floor, with old Bill kneeling beside me with a soda siphon. What happened? I said. I'm awfully sorry, old man, he said. I hadn't a notion it was you. I came in here and saw a lantern on the table, and the window open and a chap with a knife in his hand, so I didn't stop to make inquiries. I just let go at his jaw for all I was worth. What on earth do you think you're doing? Were you walking in your sleep? It was Elizabeth, I said. Why, you know all about it. She said she had told you. You don't mean the picture. You refused to take it on, so she asked me. Reggie, old man, he said. I'll never believe what they say about repentance again. It's a fool's trick and upsets everything. If I hadn't repented and thought it was rather rough on Elizabeth not to do a little thing like that for her, and come down here to do it after all, you wouldn't have stopped that sleep producer with your chin. I'm sorry. Me too, I said, giving my head another shake to make certain it was still on. Are you feeling better now? Better than I was, but that's not saying much. Would you like some more soda water? No? Well, how about getting this job finished and going to bed? And let's be quick about it, too. You made a noise like a ton of bricks when you went down just now, and it's on the cards that some of the servants may have heard. Toss you who carves. Heads. Tails it is, he said, uncovering the coin. Up you get. I'll hold the light. Don't spike yourself on that sword of yours. It was as easy a job as Elizabeth had said. 
Just four quick cuts, and the thing came out of its frame like an oyster. I rolled it up. Old Bill had put the lantern on the floor and was at the sideboard, collecting whiskey, soda, and glasses. "'We've got a long evening before us,' he said. "'You can't burn a picture of that size in one chunk. You'd set the chimney on fire. Let's do the thing comfortably. Clarence can't grudge us the stuff. We've done him a bit of good this trip. Tomorrow'll be the maddest, merriest day of Clarence's glad new year. On we go!' We went up to my room and sat smoking and yarning away and sipping our drinks, and every now and then cutting a piece of the picture off and shoving it in the fire till it was all gone. And what with the coziness of it and the cheerful blaze and the comfortable feeling of doing good by stealth, I don't know when I've had a jollier time since the days when we used to brew in my study at school. We had just put the last slice on when Bill sat up suddenly and gripped my arm. I heard something, he said. I listened, and by Jove I heard something, too. My room was just over the dining-room, and the sound came up to us quite distinctly. Stealthy footsteps by George, and then a chair falling over. There's somebody in the dining-room, I whispered. There's a certain type of chap who takes a pleasure in positively chivying trouble. Old Bill's like that. If I had been alone, it would have taken me about three seconds to persuade myself that I hadn't really heard anything at all. I'm a peaceful sort of cove, and believe in living and letting live, and so forth. To old Bill, however, a visit from burglars was pure jam. He was out of his chair in one jump. Come on, he said. Bring the poker. I brought the tongs as well. I felt like it. Old Bill collared the knife. We crept downstairs. We'll fling the door open and make a rush, said Bill. Supposing they shoot, old scout. Burglars never shoot, said Bill which was comforting, providing the burglars knew it. Old Bill took a grip of the handle, turned it quickly, and in he went, and then we went up sharp, staring. The room was in darkness except for a feeble splash of light at the near end. Standing on a chair in front of Clarence's jocund spring, holding a candle in one hand and reaching up with a knife in the other, was old Mr. Yeardsley, in bedroom slippers and a grey dressing-gown. He had made a final cut just as we rushed in. Turning at the sound, he stopped, and he and the chair and the candle and the picture came down in a heap together. The candle went out. "'What on earth?' said Bill. I felt the same. I picked up the candle and lit it, and then a most fearful thing happened. The old man picked himself up and suddenly collapsed into a chair and began to cry like a child. Of course, I could see it was only the artistic temperament, but still, believe me, it was devilish unpleasant. I looked at old Bill. Old Bill looked at me. We shut the door quick, and after that we didn't know what to do. I saw Bill look at the sideboard, and I knew what he was looking for. But we had taken the siphon upstairs, and his ideas of first aid stopped short at squirting soda water. We just waited, and presently old Yeardsley switched off, sat up, and began talking with a rush. "'Clarence, my boy, I was tempted. It was that burglary at Dryden Park. It tempted me. It made it all so simple. I knew you would put it down to the same gang. Clarence, my boy, I—' It seemed to dawn on him at this point that Clarence was not among those present. "'Clarence,' he said hesitatingly. "'He's in bed,' I said. "'In bed? Then he doesn't know? Even now—' "'Young men, I throw myself on your mercy. Don't be hard on me. Listen,' he grabbed at Bill, who sidestepped. "'I can explain everything. Everything!' He gave a gulp. "'You are not artists, you two young men. But I will try to make you understand, make you realize what this picture means to me. I was two years painting it. It is my child. I watched it grow. I loved it. It was part of my life.' Nothing would have induced me to sell it. And then Clarence married, and in a mad moment I gave my treasure to him. You cannot understand, you two young men, what agonies I suffered. The thing was done. It was irrevocable. I saw how Clarence valued the picture. I knew that I could never bring myself to ask him for it back. And yet I was lost without it. What could I do? Till this evening I could see no hope. Then came this story of the theft of the Romney from a house quite close to this, and I saw my way. 
Clarence would never suspect. He would put the robbery down to the same band of criminals who stole the Romney. Once the idea had come, I could not drive it out. I fought against it, but to no avail. At last I yielded, and crept down here to carry out my plan. You found me. He grabbed again, at me this time, and got me by the arm. He had a grip like a lobster. Young man, he said, you would not betray me. You would not tell Clarence. I was feeling most frightfully sorry for the poor old chap by this time, don't you know? But I thought it would be kindest to give it to him straight instead of breaking it by degrees. I won't say a word to Clarence, Mr. Yardsley, I said. I quite understand your feelings, the artistic temperament and all that sort of thing. I mean what? I know. But I'm afraid. Well, look. I went to the door and switched on the electric light. And there, staring him in the face, were the two empty frames. He stood goggling at them in silence. Then he gave a sort of wheezy grunt. The gang! The burglars! They have been here! And they have taken Clarence's picture! He paused. It might have been mine. My Venus, he whispered. It was getting most fearfully painful, you know, but he had to know the truth. I'm awfully sorry, you know, I said, but it was. He started, poor old chap. Eh? What do you mean? They did take your Venus. But I have it here. I shook my head. That's Clarence's jock and spring, I said. He jumped at it and straightened it out. What? What are you talking about? Do you think I don't know my own picture, my child, my Venus? See, my own signature in the corner. Can you read, boy? Look, Matthew Yardsley, this is my picture. And, well, by Jove, it was, don't you know? Well, we got him off to bed, him and his infernal Venus, and we settled down to take a steady look at the position of affairs. Bill said it was my fault for getting hold of the wrong picture, and I said it was Bill's fault for fetching me such a crack on the jaw that I couldn't be expected to see what I was getting hold of. And then there was a pretty massive silence for a bit. "'Reggie,' said Bill at last, "'how exactly do you feel about facing Clarence and Elizabeth at breakfast?' "'Old Scout,' I said, "'I was thinking much the same myself.' "'Reggie,' said Bill, "'I happen to know there's a milk train leaving Midford at 3.15. It isn't what you'd call a flyer. It gets to London at about half-past nine. Well, in the circumstances, how about it?' End of Doing Clarence a Bit of Good Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.